You wanna finish what you started? You came to the right place. The girls that you came with, you might have to part with. Depending on how this thing shakes. Wabatosa, Kenosha, Economowakas in the house. Hello and welcome to another episode of the New Look podcast. And this is a exciting episode with Dr. Edie Hirsch, Don Hirsch, uh, who is an expert on education. He's written a variety of best-selling books. He is now 92, I believe, and has had a profound impact on the education reform debate in America. Now, usually we would cover all of these things and Don's upbringing at the early part of the podcast, but due to some technical glitches, we screwed up some about the first six or seven minutes of this, which covered his background. And so I just wanted to briefly provide a thumbnail sketch of Dr. Hirsch. Uh, He grew up in Memphis. He received his undergraduate degree from Cornell University and his doctorate from Yale University. He is the founder and chairman of the Core Knowledge Foundation, not to be confused with Common Core, which he'll explain to you how he fell out of love with that movement and where he sees it as going wrong uh, in our discussion. Uh, He currently serves as a professor emeritus of education and humanities at the University of Virginia, and he's one of our foremost scholars on education issues. Uh, And among his many books, uh, you'll find a common theme arguing for uh, a common curriculum or a set of knowledge that he believes every kid in America needs to understand. And his particular argument is that it's that common foundation of knowledge that actually improves literacy. And so as we talk about a little bit, a reading test is actually not a, a competency or skills test. It's a, a knowledge-based test uh, in disguise. Obviously, that's uh, been a somewhat controversial hypothesis, though Dr. Hirsch backs it up with uh, the latest in scientific studies. But more than anything else, I what I appreciated about Dr. Hirsch is that, um, as he described early on in our conversation, he really comes from the left uh, politically. He describes himself, uh, he said, I think he grew up at one point, he considered himself a socialist or practically a communist is what he said. Um, and I think today he would still consider himself center left. But uh, if you sort of just glossed over his ideas, you might assume the opposite, that he is uh, from the right. And indeed, a lot of conservative education reformers like former Secretary of Education Bill Bennett have been big proponents of Dr. Hirsch's idea. But I think that just goes to show he's not approaching it from a left or right perspective. He's approaching it from the perspective of what is best for our kids. How do we teach kids, particularly those in elementary school, how to read? And when we have troubling statistics like six out of 10 kids in Wisconsin who can't read at grade level, um, persistently Uh, suboptimal scores on the NAEP exam internationally, Uh, Wisconsin and the country falling further behind our international peers on the PISA exam. That should be a question that motivates all of us to figure out what works and what doesn't in early childhood education in particular. And I think, especially as parents are now seeing their kids doing distance education, digital education. And as I've said before, my own view is that particularly for younger kids, 
that starts to lose its effectiveness pretty quickly. Um, I think Dr. Hirsch's ideas are very intriguing and relevant. And if nothing else, I hope that this conversation uh, stimulates some thought uh, on those issues. And I hope to continue exploring this uh, idea going forward. Uh, the other thing I appreciate about uh, Dr. Hirsch is that I, I think I first learned about him a month ago, and this is to my own shame since he's been around for a long time and written a variety of best-selling books, uh, when there, were, there was an interview with him published in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, I Googled him and I found his foundation and I just sent a, a, an email to a sort of, you know, boilerplate uh, email address associated with their website and uh, I asked if I could interview Dr. Hirsch, and he responded incredibly quickly, and he was very generous with his time, as you'll see. And so just goes to show, kids, there's no harm in asking. You never know who's going to say yes to your request for uh, an interview. But um, really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, would love to perhaps have a subsequent conversation with um, some teachers in Northeast Wisconsin uh, maybe some of those who disagree with Dr. Hirsch's views about shared knowledge and shared curricula as a foundation for literacy. Um, I myself am too early in my own inquiry to have a, a set view one way or the other, um, but it's really important. And I've come to believe that K-12 education is the great equalizer in our society. It's the way we give kids from all different backgrounds, socioeconomic, different uh, you know, different colors of their skin, different levels of wealth, a, a shot at success and opportunity and a meaningful life uh, in Wisconsin and around the country. And I think the good news is that if you can fix uh, particularly early childhood education, then uh, all our other problems get easier to fix. And so uh, again, thank you to Dr. Hirsch. And that was a little bit of background before we dive in with Dr. Hirsch on education. But, it, but in any case, uh, the, the interesting thing was that I did have a scientific interest. I, I wrote a book on theory of uh, verbal interpretation, and I had to, I had to um, master the most recent psycholinguistics, the most recent cognitive science in that area. And it was just about that time in, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, that they made a tremendous discovery that has enormous relevance to your kids reading at reading level, which is what you mentioned. And that is that language, human language, has an invisible force that you can't see or hear, but it's absolutely necessary to understanding language. And that is relevant background knowledge, which disambiguates so you have to be on the same cognitive wavelength as the writer or the speaker so that you can. Well, my example, as you may remember in, in the book of this phenomenon is Polly put the kettle on, we'll all have tea. There's such a tremendous, I mean, it's a nursery rhyme, but on the other hand, there's such a wealth of of knowledge and information that you have to have to understand that simple nursery rhyme. That, what does having tea really mean? Put the kettle on what? Uh, and 
it's a lot more than tea that you're having. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All that, uh, by the way, there's an evolutionary reason for that, for our big heads and, and for that, that characteristic of language, because it meant that you develop these large human groups. Finally, you develop nations. And they can only work through the medium of language, through communication. But the feature of language, which allows us to communicate effectively, and uh, if you're if you're understanding me, and I'm understanding you, there's a wealth of background knowledge that's helping us do that. And it was, in from an evolutionary standpoint, it was the most efficient way to to have a large group communicating effectively with each other, if your utterances could be brief and precise at the same time. To be precise usually takes a lot of elaboration. That often, if there's a tiger in the wings and something threatening, you need to be fast. So human speech developed with that peculiar characteristic. Its words are ambiguous. Its syntax is simple. It overcomes the confines of short-term memory, which are just about six or seven items, you can convey a wealth of information in our speech because we're on the same wavelength, because we can say something like Polly put the kettle on, and there's a whole range of knowledge. That insight is the most important insight for elementary education of the last half century, probably the last century. And when was it made? Did you say when was that insight discovered? It was in in the uh, in the late '60s, early '70s. So think of how long it took to find that out. Wow! I mean, because it's invisible. You 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 can't see it or touch it. But it's the most important feature of of language, certainly for education, that there is. Uh, you know, you have to learn how to decode the words. You have to learn how to sound out the syllables and so on. Once you master that, everything else is background knowledge, really. You, of course, you have to know the words, but the words themselves, like tea, tea is a pretty ambiguous word. Uh, you, you have to understand the same essentially the same background knowledge that the writer had. So that's why we have these big brains. We've got to hold a lot of that knowledge and memory just to function in society, in a big tribe, to, to communicate with each other. You have to learn the tribal lore so that we can communicate. And, of course, we do a good job of that in our schools at the elementary, at the very basic level. But we adopted a bunch of theories from the mid, from the late 19th century, early 20th century, very romantic, which said you have to follow nature and you have to follow the nature of the individual child. Interesting. And so that encouraged a lot of individual work on the theory that reading comprehension is a general skill. If that wrong theory, which is endemic in our elementary schools. So you can give kids a lot of different things to read, and it doesn't matter if they learn how to read complicated text, that will, they can transmit that or transfer it 
to other uh, activities, but they can't. Uh, my friend who's a cognitive psychologist, pretty famous one, Dan Willingham, uh, put it this way. A, a reading test is a knowledge test in disguise. And hitherto, our schools have assumed that a reading test is a reading test. And you have mastered the skill of reading comprehension. And therefore, it didn't matter what subject matters you took up. Well, you can see how that might lead to problems if, in fact, a reading test is a knowledge test. If a kid is not reading at grade level, that means that that child lacks the background knowledge needed on the questions in the test. That's the long and the short of it. Well, if that idea is, has crept into our entire educational infrastructure and is endemic, what is there any science, cognitive, psychological, or otherwise to back it? I mean, is there a, a camp opposing your theory of the world that can marshal data in its defense? No, uh, you mean uh, that reading, uh, is there data supporting the idea that reading yeah. comprehension is a general skill? Exactly. Instead of, instead exactly. of a particular skill? Uh, I would say that that is, <laughs> that's endemic to the entire system. What I'm saying is revolutionary for the system. And it has revolutionary implications because it means we all have to learn some of the same things. That's what's revolutionary. Well, I guess when did when did school did schools prior to the reading comprehension as a general skill idea adhere to the the knowledge based common knowledge model and and may help me tease out the difference the practical differences between the model you're advocating for and the the current model. Uh, if you go to reading textbooks. Uh, I started a foundation in the 80s called the Core Knowledge Foundation. It's now insanely, and during COVID, it's insanely popular because parents, by the way, they just type in Core Knowledge and you can download any of my, our materials that are useful uh, for free. Uh, these, uh, <laughs> the idea of the Core Knowledge Foundation that I started was no, elementary school has to have a, a sequence that all the kids in the class are marching, a, a, a sort of marching to this sequence of topics. Well, if you think for a moment what the background knowledge uh, insight implies, it means for one thing, just from the standpoint of fairness, two things, basic competence of, of our population, and fairness, the, how are you going to bring children from disadvantaged circumstances up, up to snuff? By the way, we do this in our core knowledge schools. There are, I'm not talking hypothetically. There are some thousands of core knowledge schools right now. And the gap, for example, we've completely closed the black-white reading gap. But... We would also close the reading gaps for the children you're talking about who are not reading at grade level because what we do is turn the classroom into what the 
in the cognitive literature is called a speech community. Uh, a speech community, everybody has the right background knowledge to understand what is being said. So the reason disadvantaged kids are disadvantaged is that they lack that relevant background knowledge. Okay, that's sort of plausible, isn't it? And so if you are carefully moving the class from this topic to this topic to this topic, what you're ready to learn depends on what you already know. And if everybody has learned some of the same things along the way, that means you've made up for the defects in children's background knowledge. The whole class becomes a speech community. Everybody moves ahead. But to do that, you all have to be studying the same thing, which is against the uh, romantic ideas that govern our education sc schools and our elementary schools. Well, so <laughs> that, what's radical about my ideas is simply this. I'm saying you have to have a common curriculum for everybody and, and ideally for everybody in the state. The states the, of the United States have the legal authority to set educational elementary school standards and to make the tests for them. Well, I'm saying the states have got to get hold on themselves. And, you know, it's very politically difficult to set a definite set of topics for grade one, two, three, four. People have, have liked the idea that reading is a general skill uh, because it says, well, just give child let the school do whatever it wants as long as they learn how to read but it turns out it's not as simple as that well i think it's politically difficult particularly after the common core debate and i should say i've opposed the federal government from right. uh, foisting those standards on the states so i just want to draw a distinction between what you're advocating in that movement um i but what are the the Beyond the, the common curriculum that you've outlined in, in many... Uh, by the way, the common, yeah. the common core standards haven't worked because they, in their own way, adopted the, the idea of reading as a general skill. Yeah. And, you, and they, used, they used the notion of complexity, which is a, a non-starter scientifically, but it was politically convenient to do it. And it's distressing to me because I was encouraging them at the beginning, but they they knew better. It was just that they wanted to get something politically done. And that, that's very disappointing to me. Well, I guess I, I just why does this idea persist if it's so at odds with basic psychology? Uh, why is it so? Well, it isn't very widely known in the, yeah. in the world. Uh, it isn't very widely known. As I said, it was discovered in the 70s and cognitive science knows it, but there's a kind of intellectual scandal that I think the general public should know about. And that is the ed schools are teaching something that's at odds with what is being taught in cognitive science. In one part of the university is teaching stuff that's different from the other part of the university. And frankly, the education, uh, research in ed schools is second rate and some uh, sometimes sleazy uh, just to preserve the, the the ideas that everybody is purveying because 
these ideas are not just about this. If you think about it, if background knowledge is that important and shared background knowledge is essential to being a good reader and to being a good communicator in the society itself, then the idea of this, these general skills goes, uh, it, it is no longer viable. And that's, as I say, it's, it's very, uh, it's politically difficult. It's politically, there's a status quo bias that makes people keep teaching the same idea. And so I wish the cognitive scientists were in charge instead of the ed professors because they haven't changed. And if, uh, the, the truth is truth be known is they don't know this science. They're not aware of it. And I'm, that's a that's a misfortune. And you're not denying the idea that kids are born with different abilities or aptitudes. But on some basic level, we all have a, a blank slate that needs to be filled with with knowledge. Kids have different personalities, different aptitudes. But in the area where, and, and you know, that's because the naturalism behind the schools, the idea that we should follow nature was so strong. Uh, what happened was that individualization became a, a byword in American elementary schools. The, the term uh, personalization and in, uh, differentiation those were two, uh, still two highly important words. The right word, in my opinion, is accommodation. Kids are different, and you have to accommodate this knowledge that we all need to learn to those different kids. It doesn't mean you want to give them different basic knowledge, because you need the same knowledge to communicate. If we are now communicating, it's because you and I have a, enough basic background in common to understand what each other is saying. I hope that's true of anybody who's who's watching this. And it's so it's very difficult to change these ideas, which have been the foundation for half a century, at least of our elementary schools, which is also the period we've gone downhill. I think I think we should in talking about a subject like this, I think it's important to to, for everybody to be aware of the objective fact that we have, our literacy in, in the United States has descended from being top in the world to being number 25 in the world. And that's because of these, uh, unfortunately, I, I happen to be, a, my technical subject was romanticism, and I know where these nature is best ideas came from. But you asked me, let, let me revert back to the question that you asked about uh, the difference of children's abilities and temperaments. Uh, anybody would be a fool who denied it. But there, there was basically a debate uh, between, I don't want to get too fancy, but between the Rousseau people and the John Locke people. The, the uh, Rousseau, who is the dominant figure behind our education, said, you have to do what's natural. And John Dewey, who is the American father of this tradition in education, said, 
the basis of education are the instincts and powers of the individual child. That word instinct is very telling. It's as though we had an instinct to read this book rather than that book, to do this subject rather than that. Locke, on the other hand, said we, we're born with a blank slate. And brain science actually within the last, <laughs> I'd say within the last five or to 10 years, it's, it's very, quite new. Brain science has gotten sufficiently sophisticated that actually you can tell who was right about that. And as far as the part of the brain that goes to school, which is not one's inner temperament and one's sex urges or anything like that, that part of the brain is this what makes our heads so big. It's where memory resides and, and where most schooling is taking place. That's called the neocortex. I don't want to get too fancy, but it's a blank slate. We know that now at the molecular level. And, and it is so important to... And both, Locke had that insight. He's, he said experience, not, in, not innate ideas, experience... If he, I mean, the romantics kind of rediscovered innate ideas and to the individual childhood. No, no, no. Locke had that idea because he looked around and said, look at all these different cultures. Uh, look at all these different languages. Look at all these different ways of accommodating yourself to the environment. And so it has to be a blank slate is what, what he was saying. You have to learn the lore of each tribe. And that's... And the evolutionists say that's right, too, because that's what enables human tribes to survive and flourish. And then now we have the, well, the, the essay in, in brain science that brought this home to me was uh, had this title, The Microcircuitry of the neocortex as a tabula rasa. Well, tabula rasa was the very term that Locke used. And uh, anyway, it, if you get down to the microcircuitry of the neocortex, you're getting pretty far down, and it's a blank slate. And it can be formed. This is hugely important in the debates, by the way, about multiculturalism and and uh, whose culture and all that kind of thing that's asked. B because if the baby is born with a blank slate, as far as culture goes, there's no reason that baby can't adopt more than one culture. And many people do speak more than one language, which implies adopting more than one culture. So the idea of the sort of the racializing of ethnicity is a, has been a bad turn in, in our schools. Multiculturalism in a, is fine in, in you know, respecting a lot of different cultures, but not to say that we have an obligation to teach an American culture uh, and with your feeling that there's an American identity just on pragmatic grounds, not just um, emotional and uh, patriotic ones. You, we need to learn 
these things in common to work as a society uh, to, to communicate in, in language. So it's a troublesome, it's, you know, sure, respect everybody's culture, but, and I would put it this way, I mean, if to, to racialize culture is sort of to, is a form of ancestor worship, and, and America was founded in, in, to throw over the ancestors and start afresh. And this particular uh, finding in, in brain science is a tremendous uh, boost, it seems to me, to the assim so-called assimilationist idea, which says which is non-racial. It says Frederick Douglass is as much my ancestor as George Washington is. And, and that's terrifically important insight, I think. And, and we have to get rid of, the, of this uh, narrow sense of what one's culture is. The elementary school is a culture-creating institution. It makes, it makes Americans, that's it. Or uh, it makes citizens, and it and it makes competence. And co the chief competence is is reading, writing, and arithmetic. And reading and writing require shared knowledge. So I I want to say this not as a, a religious statement or not as a big C Catholic statement, but a small C Catholic statement, which is to say, I feel like life is about is not about indulging your nature raw as it is or your instinct, but rather taming it and overcoming it. Absolutely. And, uh, <laughs> uh, it's not just it's not just the churches that said that. The philosophers, the secular philosophers said it too. All the ethicists that I ever heard of say that. And uh, it's 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 very amusing. Uh, it, you know, I if you if you look at my work, you find that one of my intellectual idols is Emile Durkheim, the famous French sociologist, and he was the he. It was difficult in the 1920s when he wrote to come out and say that society is the origin of the gods, and that. And of course, the, uh, America repudiated any particular sect because we were founded when people were killing each other by the hundreds of thousands in Europe uh, over the wars of religion in, in, in Europe. So we said we have to separate church and state because otherwise every, we don't want our citizens at one another's throats. On the other hand, everybody well recognized that the, the Ten Commandments and the, and the ethical principles of Christianity were the right principles, which, by the way, are, no, are not all the, I mean, the, I'll put it, the, the Judeo-Christian tradition anyway, has these ethical principles at their heart that make a good society, that make a, a society work. And that sort of sociological and anthropological view of things is, is you don't you don't absolutely have to have a particular uh, sectarian religion to acknowledge that even on purely secular ground, one of the first theorists of American education was Benjamin Rush, who wrote a, a little book in the in the 1700s on 
on what American education should be. And he said, well, you know, if you take the theology out, Christianity is, is basically the right ethical principle. Love thy neighbor as thyself. And yeah. boy, we could use a lot of that right now. Well, okay, if I, if I want to tease out more of the practical implications of your argument, to me, the, the implications for how you teach are, are pretty obvious, right? This, this uh, you know, kids laying around in beanbags in a classroom and doing their thing is, is madness, right? And so, I mean, one, stop me there and tell me if you, if you agree with that. And well, so, there was, uh, it's interesting that the change from the individual approach to the commun from the communal approach, where everybody was learning the same thing and listening to the teacher as the font of the of the knowledge they should have, when it became uh, more romantic, when the idea became that you have to personalize education, and th there was an idea of individual development as though the mind developed as the body developed. And that happens to be true in animals, but it isn't true in humans, as our, our first leader of public education, Horace Mann, that was how he started off. Look, humans are different from the lower orders. We, we, we don't develop our own nature. We have to be taught in, in, in each particular uh, culture. And, that <laughs> that means that the elders have to teach the young. That's the whole purpose of the so the human tribe, just from an evolutionary standpoint, is the elders of the tribe that have to teach the upcoming generation the lore of the tribe, and the lore of the tribe is is terribly important that it's common lore, because that's what makes language work. And it's language that makes human tribes work. The, it, language, I mean, I, you can include arithmetic if you want, reading, writing, arithmetic, but, but basically communication is what makes any modern society work. And that's language, communication. And it turns out that communication is based on having everybody know what having tea means. Otherwise, some kids are left out and, and, and never catch up. And that's why it's so important to have a common topics in the early curriculum. Everybody catches up that way. We've completely closed uh, the reading gaps between the groups. As a matter of fact, not only close them, but gotten so good that uh, <laughs> uh, our most disadvantaged kids in uh, Cornell schools in the South Bronx are uh, winning citywide debate contests and st stuff like that. It's, it's thrilling to see. But the ideas, I mean, it's a big country. It takes a long time for new, for ideas to catch up. As a, well, the South, politically speaking, and you, you may be interested in the political side, there's a tremendous, in the South Bronx, these schools, there are seven of these schools that are using this idea of systematic uh, knowledge building. And they are 
30 and more points in reading and writing above the neighboring schools. So every parent wants their kids to go to those schools. There are seven of them. And because nobody leaves these schools, Jeff uh, can only take in the kindergartners. Who, and so that's 130 kids that he and his seven schools can take in. He has over 20,000 applicants wow. for kindergarten every year. That's for kindergarten, 20,000 applicants. So there's a huge, I mean, the parents are aware of the difference these educational ideas make. And it's, I think it's so important to what you're doing. I don't know how many parents would get informed by this conversation, but it's so important to inform parents that our, uh, it's not our teacher's fault. They've been trained in these romantic ideas that are incorrect scientifically and don't work. That's the reason we've gone downhill in the, in the PISA scores from 1st to 25th. And they can take hold of the situation. <laughs> I mean, they're the voters. The state legislators and, and governors get voted in and out. It seems to me that it's got to be a... <laughs> What you're doing is great if you if you can help spread spread this word. I mean, in terms of how they teach in, in your schools, is it kids are in desks facing the well, front? And that uh, it, it's expensive to buy new furniture the way we did. Uh, it's true that the desks is symbolically speaking when they unbolted the old desks, which were all facing the front and the teachers. Uh, started being a guide on the side instead of a sage on the stage. When that happened, uh, well, uh, it's true. They ultimately changed the furniture. They have a, normally the modern elementary classroom has four or five big tables in a classroom and the kids are all facing each other around these big tables. I don't know about the bean bags. They're, they're probably been true. Anyway, that's because of a theory. And the theory, and as I was just mentioning, the theory turns out to be wrong. Well, does that mean we have to put <laughs> the desk back? I think as a temporary measure, you could just leave the tables where they are and have everybody turn around and listen to the teacher from that position instead of buying a lot of new furniture. However, whole class instruction is, if you want to have an effective and efficient uh, elementary system, whole class instruction has to be the uh, basic name of the game. That There's all kinds of ways you can have to do individual accommodations, of course. There's less accommodating that's necessary if you have a systematic curriculum where one topic leads to another topic. So all the kids are ready in that speech community to listen. So you were right. It, it does reach over into pedagogy. Uh, it's not just the curriculum that needs to be changed. The pedagogy is the pedagogy of everybody learning the same thing. If Now, that's one thing, but it strikes me it's even harder or more politically sensitive to determine what you teach, not how you teach. And so 
how who gets to determine it's not in other words it's not just that kids need to read a lot it's that they need to read the right things correct well uh that's maybe i got that wrong i don't know yeah that's the reason i got into this game i wrote a book and actually it it was a bestseller for a while but it didn't make any difference uh, it said everybody has to learn a lot of the same things. And it actually, there were 5,000 items on this list that I included in the book, and that's what made everybody grab hold of it. And if you, if you want an example of a curriculum that works, as I say, you can get all these materials for free from my foundation, Core Knowledge. But that's not written in stone. There is, you have to determine it, it, it doesn't have to be precise, and here's the reason why. Around each bit, each topic, there's a range of emphases you can you can have. So you don't have to say lockstep. Everybody has to read the same textbook. By no means, there needs to be a sense that there's a print culture. There are things that you have to know in order to read those books and those textbooks and to get into college. And if you remember that there is no such thing as a general reading test, that are, as a general reading skill, and that a reading test is a knowledge test, then you have to have the knowledge. And there is this basic print culture knowledge that a literate person has. Otherwise, we couldn't function. We couldn't be functioning now in this conversation. So, yes, that implies a definite curriculum, and you can argue about it, but who has the authority to set that curriculum? That's what you're asking. Who decides? I would say that the state governor and legislature have a, a responsibility to do that. Uh, the states have the responsibility of governance, and presumably, it's, it'll be decided in a democratic way. But the chief thing I would like to stress, if the public is convinced that this, we have to change, and that this basic line is that there should be a, a set of topics that kids are tested on, tested on those topics in each grade of elementary school, well, you, what would happen to any state that did that is its reading scores would go way up. The reading gaps would be closed. And people would say, yeah, that's a good idea. So some state has to have, be brave enough to, to start that off and, and do it. And then the country would follow. I mean, then the other states would follow because it seemed. So the French have that saying, say the premier uh, uh, it's a long slog, but what's really hard is to take the first step. And any state that did it would, uh, you know, would fight real battles. Uh, so it's, it's hard to be the pioneer in that, but it is really what we need to do and it needs to be done democratically and intelligently, and people need to feel that they have a say in it. 
Also, I think it's it would be helpful if there if if people had the idea that there is a print culture. There's an American print culture, and and it isn't any particular race or ethnicity culture. It's 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 um, the last chapter of my book is called American Ethnicity. It it was always the case. It, now it's dismissed as as white culture, which is, uh, as I say, it's the racialization of culture, which is incorrect and self-defeating. And uh, it's scientifically incorrect and it's, it's self-defeating. And, and it also leads to increased racism because everybody becomes uh, increasingly conscious of, of race if you're using those categories for everything. So, uh, <laughs> though I've been a, a fighter for racial, as I say, racial equality my whole life, I now find myself, uh, well, an assimilation. But by the way, Frederick Douglass was an assimilationist. He said American culture needs, American nationalism needs to be a composite, composite was the term he used, nationalism, then everybody should learn the same. Uh, I thought that was a, he was such a brilliant man, and I, I thought that was absolutely right on. It, it turns out that a lot of those people in mid-19th century were, were thinking in terms like this uh, about, about how do we make America? How do you <laughs> make it a unity? How do you achieve unity? When it's, I, I can't, I mean, elementary education is maybe the only thing we have that can act as as not only that great unifier, but also that equalizer in the sense that That's no matter right. what socioeconomic background you come from, if yeah. you come from a terrible family situation where your parents aren't reading to you and with you, yeah. this gives you a shot right here. We, we owe you that much in America. That's we owe you a world-class elementary yeah. education. Yeah, absolutely. Good for you. I think so. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm kind of learning about this. I mean, as I mentioned to you at the outset, the idea that 60% of Wisconsin kids just can't read at grade level should be a huge wake-up call. And I, as a national security guy, the PISA test scores should be a, a call to action. If I'm correct, I mean, I think the countries that are – I believe China was at the top of the latest round of tests. If they're, if well, that's right. The right uh, way. That's right. But Canada is way up there. And I don't think we need to look at, say, you have to be like China and we don't want to be like China, which is perfectly true. Uh, it wouldn't be bad to be a little bit more like Canada. I mean, every, Canada is very high on the happiness index, which my daughter tells me about. I'm not exactly sure <laughs> it is. And also, it's very high on the PISA scores. Yeah. And... I, I will say, I'm told that they've adopted some of these ideas I've been mentioning. That, that well, I think part of the, the thing that's made your mission even harder is just now the role that technology and social media plays in the classroom. And in some ways enables, I think, a lot of the romantic, Rousseauian, you know, faddish ideas that suddenly, you know, the Declaration of Independence is a racist document that shouldn't oh. be taught and... I mean, is that how do you view that challenge? Well, uh, if you if you don't like the Declaration of Independence, you could use the battle cry of the French Revolution. <laughs> I don't care. Uh, I like it, by the way, liberty, equality, and fraternity. Which, it, uh, how do you translate that? 
without making it gender. It means literally brotherhood. But, uh, and I came up with it, said, well, there was a, a principal in the South Bronx, Sheila Durant. I asked her, do you teach patriotism? And she said, yes, we, we do the, this is a very deprived public school. And they do the, of all the public schools, if you exclude the uh, charters, they do the best in the South Bronx. And she said, yes, we do the uh, Pledge of Allegiance every morning and we tell every child that they have to be kind to other people. And I consider that the essence of patriotism, she said. And that, <laughs> I thought, and then I looked up the word kind and kindness, and it means brotherhood, uh, because it comes from Gekunda. It's the, uh, which is, or, you know, the same word as genus or kind. It means your brother and your sister, those who are in, in your uh, family. It's those who, be who belong in your intimate circle. So it's treating everybody. Uh, you know, it's also in Paul, isn't it? Uh, treat thy neighbor as thyself. How does how does it go? I, I should know this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I went to Catholic school and I don't remember that. <laughs> so the Declaration of Independence is actually that I, I don't know anybody who really thinks it's about. Oh, the only thing that's different from liberty, equality, and Kindness is uh, the pursuit of happiness, but everybody's into that now anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it remains, to use Lincoln's phrase, the apple of gold and the, the frame of silver. Um, I'd be curious, um, okay, so let's say I, you know, you've convinced me 100%. If you were king for a day in Wisconsin, looking at our education, what, what would be, what you mentioned some of this before, but what would be kind of the practical things you would do if you wanted to arrest this well i would slide. like to have an army of, uh, of persuaded people uh persuading the general public uh and then the legislators would have to make a curriculum <laughs> that a curriculum you know it isn't every uh dot of the eye a curriculum that i'm thinking of you can take a look at the cornell the core knowledge sequence is not a bad model. I'm not saying that that you should have what what's in it, but the, recognizing this problem, I started this foundation. I, I it, the, the cultural literacy was a bestseller, and so I I put the proceeds from that into this foundation called the Core Knowledge Foundation, and we created a curriculum. And now we have, uh, I think it's by far the largest number of things you can download and print. So you can teach a coherent curriculum, but it, and it works as we, as we know it's in, I'm told that some aspect of it is in 10,000 schools now. So, uh, and, but there are only about two or 3,000 that are doing the full uh, curriculum. And, and, that is certainly, but you don't, I mean, any country that's rated high on PISA, look at, look at the sort of thing that, that they do. They're all, they're all countries that use uh, a standard curriculum, that is a standard set of topics. 
And the arguments against it, which I discussed uh, a bit in my book, are not as strong as the arguments for it. And that's the long and the short of it. Sure, there, there are going to be drawbacks. But the, the funny thing is, the, the, the main worry that people have is you'll get some sort of dictatorship of a point of view, uh, uh, some sort of uh, mind, mind control, as it were. But that's not what, what the topics themselves do. And uh, it, that doesn't seem to happen in democracies that have common curricula. And that's A. And B, I think you're a hell of a lot more likely to, be, to undergo mind control if uh, you're not very literate. Yeah. You, it, you're not as knowledgeable. You're not as smart. That's another interesting thing. IQ is uh, highly related to literacy. Uh, I didn't know that until actually a few weeks ago. Uh, <laughs> Or did you discover but that? You make yourself smart. You do. You make yourself smarter by being highly knowledgeable. Literacy, literacy depends on knowledge. And that's the thing to, rem to remember. So to argue against a shared curriculum is to argue against literacy and knowledge, really. Uh, and, and, and I'll put it another way. What you're doing now is not working. Yeah. That seems like a pretty strong argument, too. And what's the, the first rule of holes is to stop digging. And we're, we continue to dig. Um, I'm sorry, I, say that. I said the first rule of holes is to stop digging if you find yourself in a hole. So, um, OK, final question for you, Don. Um, so I guess, correct, OK, maybe stop me if this is too histrionic of a statement here. If we can't fix this problem, and if we can't arrive at some common educational standard, at least on a state-by-state state level, all of our political divisions and the tribalizations of American politics are bound to intensify, even beyond what they are now. Right. Well, that should be a wake-up call for everybody. Well— <laughs> I'm so that's why I'm so pleased to have this chat, and it would be marvelous if you can persuade uh, some of your colleagues. Well, I'm going to start with my own family. I I have a, a three month old daughter, so I've started to think very deeply about how to educate a young citizen. So your book, How to Educate a Citizen, comes at the perfect time. And um, yeah, thank you for your And then take a take a look at the uh, Cornellish website. You can get a good, lot of good stuff. Good. But I have a feeling starting in K, starting in K. I have a feeling that my daughter, even though she can't talk or, or read yet, is is not going to like that we had this conversation because she's going to be getting a lot of extra homework. <laughs> Mike, it's been a real pleasure and and very hopeful uh, to talk to you. Well, thank you, Don. We appreciate it very much. The do the the do the